Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, it's Alistair Campbell here. And before you listen to our leading interview with David Baddiel, just a word of warning. Even to those of you who may be used to my Malcolm Tucker-esque approach to language, This one does contain some very strong language from the off. So if you're listening with children in the back of the car or running around the kitchen, you might want to plug in your headphones. But do enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of The Rest is Politics Leading with me, Alistair Campbell. And with me, Rory Stewart. With a, how do we describe him, cultural icon? Certainly was in the old days. Okay, when that's bad already. Was. <laughs> it was, was a cultural icon with the old footballs coming home and all that. So comedian, first off, but has become kind of quite a serious cultural figure. Well, let me, let me read you the first bit of his latest book and see if anyone can guess. I am an insomniac. There are many potential reasons for this, most of them probably physical. But if you're going to be psychoanalytical about it and look for something in my childhood... I'd say it was to do with death. Mm. So he's insomniac, slightly worried about death. The book, which is not yet published, I don't think, is about to be published, called The God Desire. So we're going to find out whether he does or he doesn't do God. And I think we'll probably give it away. I think we've given it away with the football stuff. Also, I've spoken. (laughs) Now my voice is very recognisable. I guess so. Okay. So we're now going to say who you are. You are David Baddiel. Yeah. I mean, otherwise the podcast becomes a who is this thing, (laughs) which I think, you know, it's a whole other brag, isn't it? Well, that is a good title for a podcast. Who is this? So why are we here, David? Uh, Is that a general question about life? Yes, it is is about about life. What am I doing here at the Palladium? Look, if you write a book called The God Desire, don't expect not to be asked, why are we here? Or or as I'd like to say, what's it all about? Well, (laughs) the answer to both those questions, why are we here and what's it all about, is there is no reason we're not here for any particular reason. It's not about anything. And as a result, we have created God, along with various other narratives. Who doesn't exist. Who doesn't exist. But we've created God. The book is very, very clear. I would love god to exist as a buffer to that nothingness and oblivion and pointlessness and to give meaning and purpose to our lives and to outsmart death and that's what the god desire is so as an atheist book which it is it's fundamentally an atheist book 
it's different from most atheist books in that it's not about well, was there something before the Big Bang or you know how can we exist without a moral compass that God all, all of those normal things that are discussed in, in atheist books. It's not about that. It's about what I feel is at the heart of why God exists because it's a given to me that He doesn't, which is that we are frightened and desperate and in need of comfort. So He's a sort of father figure who's going to do everything for us and look after us and care for us and we desperately need that. He's a superhero dad who chases off death and who wouldn't want that? Before we get into politics, I wanted to start a little bit with you and your childhood. Yeah, okay. So give us a bit of a sense of how you grew up, who your parents were. Okay, Uh, my mum, who's referred to in the book that you just read, um, was a refugee from Nazi Germany. She was born in Nazi Germany in March 1939, there's some confusion about that. When I did Who Do You Think You Are, her papers were very confusing because I think some of them were forged in order to get her out of Germany. But they got out at the last minute there. And, and her parents were? Her parents were originally, before Hitler came to power, or his, my grandfather was an industrialist, quite a wealthy industrialist in a place called Königsberg. And his name was? His name was Ernst Fabian. And Königsberg is where Emmanuel Kant comes from. Yes, it sounds like you said cunt there, I'm afraid, but... How, how do you pronounce K-A-N-T except in the way that I did? Kant. In German? Kant. I don't know Try how you it in German. Kant. Yeah. I mean, I think it's simpler <laughs> for us all if we call it Kant. Otherwise, I feel we're calling, you know, the person who wrote Critique of Pure Reason a cunt, and that's who, who wants to do that. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, your grandfather came yeah. from... Königsberg. Königsberg, for an only... And, and it's, it's a long way out, right, towards Russia. Well, yeah, I've been there, um, and now it is in Russia. Before the Second World War, it had been a university town, as you say, where Kant came from, and very beautiful, and then it was bombed to fuck during the Second World War. And the, the Russian word and the F word. Yeah, sorry about that. And uh, it's hideous now. Well, sorry for any Königsberg, not Kaliningradians, as we call now listening, but it's kind of the arse end of the old Soviet Union now. Um, but they were industrialists. And, and, and very, very wealthy? Really wealthy, as far as I can make out. I yeah. mean, I think they had servants and stuff, uh, and they had a big society wedding, my grandparents. But then from 1933 onwards, that obviously all went. And by 1939, they had nothing. And my grandfather had been in a concentration camp. He'd been in Dachau after Kristallnacht, and he was forced to clean up the rubble of his synagogue with a number of other Jews and sent to a concentration camp. And they, had, they lost everything else they had, getting him out of that camp, bribing people to get him out of that camp. And then with literally three weeks to go before the war broke out, they just managed to get into this country. The wider family were killed. And then you came here, or your, your mother no, came I, here. My mum my mom then met my dad. Right, but hold on. And then you became a comedian yeah, you've, and you've did, did a whole, forward. wait a minute, did a whole show yeah. about your family, which I reckon if if I'd done a show about my parents as intimate and as detailed about their mm. their lives together as that, I think I'd have got a bit of a smack around the chops. Well, luckily my, luckily, my mum was dead. <laughs> luckily sounds weird in that particular case. And my father had dementia by that time. But I would say that show if we're going to talk about that show, was a huge act of love. Do you know about the show, Roy? He did a one-woman one show. I did a one-woman show in the West End. A one-woman show. It wasn't a way one-woman, because it was made about my mum, although yeah. people seem to think it was made about my dad. Is this where you talk about the fact that she had an affair with a man and collected golf memorabilia? Yes, my mum collected golf memorabilia in a very extreme way. She turned our whole lives over to golfing memorabilia, so you couldn't exist in our house without seeing somewhere a statue of Lee Trevino. What's an example of golf memorabilia? Sorry. Lots and lots of deco pictures of me playing golf. She wrote 
eight books about coffee table books called things like The Source Book of Golf, Golf the Golden Years, Out on the Links. And, and they were, like and they were, actually had a stall in they Gray's were, Antique Market down they were the road. Published these books? Yeah, published, yeah. I think Golf the Golden Years sold about 100,000 copies, but she did a very shit deal for it and didn't get any money. And this is because her lover was a great golfer. Yeah, so the, the key thing is that this guy, I'll, but name him, his name is David White, and he yeah. may still be alive, and I think yeah. he lives in Slovenia. Uh, he was a golfing memorabilia guy, collector of golfing memorabilia. And literally, got, we loved football in our house. I, I grew up with my dad, who was Welsh and working class, with three sons. And we loved football. That was the only sport ever mentioned in our house. My mum, not very bothered with football, but not very bothered with any sport, one day becomes obsessed with golf, starts a golfing memorabilia business called Golfiana, which was the name of the business that David White also ran. She just nicked whole bits of his life. And it really, it was just a homage. And was he very glamorous? It, I think in her eyes, yes. Uh, if you saw her pictures of him now, you'd think he looked a bit like Roger Whittaker. Right? He had a kind of polo neck, he smoked a pipe, he had a beard, and he was a member of various golf clubs, which in 1973, to a Jew, would have felt glamorous because it was still restricted at that time. So, so she ended up having come from a moderately wealthy background in, in Well, Europe. she would not have known anything about that. She wouldn't have known it, but she might have been aware of well, it. Well, this is my And then point. she comes here and marries this kind of working class very kind of angry guy. Yeah, Welsh, shouty guy who loved her initially, I think. And why, why, why did she marry him? Well, I think lots of people got married in the late 50s and 60s because they, that was the way they had sex, wasn't it? Like there wasn't much choice. They, I'm not sure. Well, I'm not sure. Our parents also got married roughly that period. And to have and, sex. And might, might have quite liked each other. Well, I, I, looking at their diary, <laughs> the diary of my yeah. mum, my dad yeah. didn't have didn't write diaries. He's a very unemotional man. But I think she did love him at the time. But my mum never wouldn't have known her own mind. And also, my dad was quite handsome then, and he was an intellectual. He was doing chemistry. He got out of the sort of working class environment he lived in by getting doing a PhD in chemistry at Imperial College. And at the time, later on, he got made redundant, and his life turned to shit. But at that point, he would have seemed quite a prospect. She was very pretty. What there wasn't, I think, was an intellectual connection between them at all. And what I think Alice was going to say, which I think is true, is that when my mum was disappointed in the mid-70s with her life and her marriage, this guy appeared, and it was a version of the life that she might have had if the Nazis had never appeared. Because if the Nazis had never appeared, she would have probably married some kind of Austrian prince in her mind. And although he was not an Austrian prince, he was a golfing memorabilia salesman. That's the best that Cricklewood in 1975 could provide. So what was Cricklewood in 1975 like for a kid? Quite rough in Dollis Hill, where we lived. Um, I went to an Orthodox Jewish primary school, the North West London Jewish Day School. And I went there despite the fact that we were not an Orthodox Jewish family. Uh, it's complicated. Basically, my mum's parents, who were, were alive, my, so she'd got out with her parents. They lived in Cambridge in a, a one-bedroom flat for many years, uh, but they still kept sort of Jewish stuff going. But my dad couldn't be bothered with any of that. He used to call it Ollie Wolly Bolly uh, prayers. <laughs> Whenever we used to do like Seder night Passover, he would say, I'm sorry, I'm going to swear again. When can we get over the fucking ollie wolly bolly and just eat, right? But my mum kind of kept it going, but it wasn't really an orthodox house. However, the only school near us that a Jew would probably not get beaten up at, or at least have some trouble was that school, and it was an orthodox school. So I went to school wearing a yarmulke right. and sits it, yeah. which are sort of internal vest things, mm. learning Hebrew, praying for every meal, et cetera, et cetera, and then going home and having bacon sandwiches. And so David, it was weird. And David, one thing that, um, you sometimes hear, I don't know whether it's true, but I was talking to communities in North London who claimed that there had been a big shift in education, that 
schools were much more mixed in the 60s and 70s, and that it's actually been increasingly the case that people are sending their children to Jewish schools. Many of the people I was talking to had themselves been to schools where they were 10 or 20% of a mixed population, but they'd very much made the decision that their own kids were going to go to Jewish schools. But that wasn't your experience. Well, I don't really know why you went to that school. I, well, my younger brother didn't go to that school. My younger brother um, went to a school called Aylstone, and he once said to me to try and describe how hard Aylstone was, that another kid had burnt down the assembly hall and got suspended, <laughs> which I think is kind of brilliant. So the schools were rough around there, but North West London Jewish Day School was not, because Jewish schools are not. Which is not to say there wasn't difficulties. I remember there being people throwing stones and chanting outside the school, because that's what it was like in the 1970s. Final thing on, on the before we move forward out of, out of your kind of parents, grandparents, did you know your mother's parents well? I mean, what did it feel like for your grandfather to go from being a prosperous man in Königsberg to living in a one-bedroom flat in Cambridge? Did you get a sense of his journey? His Yeah, latterly I did. Uh, I mean, it's quite hard for a young kid to take in. When I was 11, I said to my grandma, did you have any brothers and sisters? And she said, you have to ask Mr. Hitler what happened to them, which was I remember really weird at the time because all I really knew about Mr. Hitler was the guy in Dad's Army theme tune. But she meant that her brother had been killed, I later found out, probably in the Warsaw Ghetto, possibly to Rage and that, you know, which is incredible. That's my great uncle who I know, I know his name. His name is Arno, but that's what they came from. They came from that level of trauma. He was in and out of mental hospitals, mainly Fulbum in Cambridge for the rest of his life. He worked as a porter in um, a hotel in Cambridge in the Garden Hotel. Having managed a, a business when he was in Cambridge. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. a brick factory. They owned a brick factory. Abramoski and Fabian, I've got a little advert. So he, he went from managing you know, lots of people to being a porter owner. Yeah. yeah. And in his 40s, he never really spoke English. Uh, one thing, she did really well. She had a very heavy jet. There's another thing you need to remember is the British government, I've written a novel about this, my third novel, it's called The Secret Purposes, and it's about the internment of Jewish-German refugees on the Isle of Man during the Second World War. That's what happened to my grandfather in 1940, and this is very interesting in terms of, I did mention Gary Lineker before we got here, but in terms of the migrant hysteria now, there was migrant hysteria about Jewish immigrants in 1940. And what there was also was the British government was suppressing information about the Holocaust because they didn't want British people to think they were fighting a war on behalf of the Jews. As a result, many people thought, and egged on by the papers, especially the Daily Express, the Daily Mail, what are all these foreigners doing here? And of course, they were Jewish-German refugees, but they weren't really understood as such. Churchill, as a result, in June 1940, he, he, he said this in collar the lot. And what he meant was, we're going to arrest every single German living in Britain, 99% of which are Jewish-German refugees, including my grandfather, and intern them on the Isle of Man for two years. Okay, so let's, let's fast forward. We'll come back to football and comedy and all that. But as you've raised Gary Lineker and the recent sort of controversy over what he said, and the kind of convulsion of controversy that yeah. it aroused. And he is the executive producer of this podcast. He's the, you know, as per the BBC New Rules, we have to say that this podcast is is owned by the... And, and I'm really worried I'm going to lose my job. <laughs> ...who co-founded uh, Yeah, but this, this is not a BBC company. production, so I think you can say what you like. No, basically. but my point is that part of the nonsense of the controversy is that every time I went on television to talk about it, the BBC felt the need to point out this... Oh, right. That, I think I saw as you that. just did. Yeah, anyway, well, yeah, because it's funny. So the point is that I actually think what you just said kind of backs up what he was saying. Not what they said he was saying, but what he was saying. I don't agree. Because? Well, I actually said this and I actually sent it to Gary, mm -hmm. which is 
If you want to make a 1930s analogy, there is one. And that is to talk about how the British press and indeed black shirts were in the 1930s towards Jewish immigrants fleeing from Germany. And they were using the language of Invasions. You know, invasion. Kind of what, that, I think that's no, because of what that is saying. very. That is, I'm afraid, different from the language of the actual Nazis towards. And this is a key point, which I think I was the first person to make actually, but I'm now seeing more people make it towards their own citizens. Now, I've seen some people say, "Well, what difference does it make? They're all human beings." There is a difference. The Nazis turned their hate, extreme hate, and not. By the way, people say, oh, it was different. From 1923, mm-hmm. when Mein Kampf, they turned their hate on their own citizens. My grandfather had roots in Germany going back to the 19th century. They were Germans. They were not immigrants. So what would be equivalent is to Alla Braverman saying to me or any other minority group living in Britain, you are vermin, you need to go, you can't. Uh, marry a British citizen. You okay, need, but you one can't of the work. consequences. One of she the, didn't do that. No, but no, but one of the consequences of the politics that she pursues is that people who live in this country feel ostracised, feel marginalised, feel hated, feel that they are part of the swarm, the invasion. That's why you're getting all these protests outside hotels, housing asylum seekers. Well, I'm not denying that she's othering the immigrants. She is othering, right? But I think the point is, this is a complex point to do with what we presume are going to move on to, which is the Jews don't count phenomenon, mm-hmm. which is part I've of... I've got to say, you're brilliant at plugging all your books. That's thanks. three massive plugs Thank already. You should hear him on his books. Part of yeah. the Jews don't count phenomenon <laughs> and the Jews don't count phenomenon is about how my thinking that, that particularly in progressive circles, that issues around anti-Semitism, around Jewish inclusion, Jewish representation are dialed down. And I agree with that. One of those issues is that there's a sort of what Deborah Lipschak calls soft-core Holocaust denial. And part of that is a tendency to use the Holocaust as an analogy for all sorts of things that are not really comparable to the Holocaust. And the key element of that is that when Jews, as they often do, like slightly say, actually, this isn't really what it's like, it's not really comparable, what you get is huge blowback from the left. As if the Jews somehow own this yeah. and therefore are saying that like you can't possibly get and there are things. There are things. For example, the Uyghurs in China, mm-hmm. they are Chinese citizens, they are being put in camps. Correct. They are being sterilized. Correct. That is analogous. Okay. There's still differences, but it's okay. That's analogous. What Gary Lineker said was the policy is immeasurably cruel, which it is. And that the debate surrounding it is redolent of the 30s in Germany. And I think that's true. Let me, let, me, let me try to put David's point. It's not actually redolent to the way that people in 1930s Germany talked about their own citizens. It's a, it's a different thing. It's, it's quite different to the way that Hitler perceived Germans. Well, also, I'm very interested in specificity. That's what I'm interested in. I know that. I'm interested in intellectual and historical specificity. Which is so, why Twitter is not a great addition to the world. No, I agree with that. So, I agree with so that. So Gary tweets something no, and sets off a debate. But I'm saying that the, the kernel of the debate, he's right. Also, can I just say something else? I, I think Gary should be able to say what he likes. It's crazy that um, someone who is not a journalist and someone who is a private citizen and, you know, he works for the BBC, but that doesn't mean that he represents the BBC, is not allowed to basically say what he likes. The impartiality stuff is, I totally think he should be allowed to say what he likes. And the BBC just needs to sort out that. But that's different from the fact that constantly, particularly since social media, which in its binaries leads to extremities. And one of those extremities is, I'm going to compare the thing that I'm angry about to the Nazis. And the problem with that, if you're actually someone whose mother, she's not a distant, whose mother's life was destroyed. David, I think there's a thing here where 
So I've looked at the language of the 30s in, in, Nazi, in, in the, you know, Hitler's time, and I've looked at the language of Mussolini, and there's so many so echoes. What, what is it that, that the Tories are saying that is similar to what Hitler was saying about the Jews? He is saying that the language that was used by Sula Bretman is similar to the language used in Britain in the 1930s. It's yeah. not similar to the and, language and used in Germany in the 1930s. Order. The discrepancies of the actual analogy we can argue about. Well, what I am very concerned about, mm. and this is the whole point about Jews being allowed to have some place at the conversation, which they're often not allowed to have, totally. is that, that the Holocaust is very important in the way that Jews understand how they perceive how they are vulnerable. I get that. So Jewish ownership of it's kind of the same thing about like what I said to you earlier and what I often say to left-wing people when they try and tell me what is and isn't anti-Semitism, in a way, people t- trying to tell me what is and isn't the Holocaust is the same thing. Mm, because the Holocaust is the acme of anti-Semitism. Okay, I agree with what you say about anti-Semitism. I thought you made an incredibly important point. And I think your, your whole concept of the, the hierarchy of racism is incredibly important. And it's a point that I can 100% support. David, let's, let's get back to, to, to Jews' account yeah. and give us, give us a minute on, on the thesis of that book. Well, the, th- the thesis of the book, which we've sort of slightly covered, but is that I had the impression, and the context is very important, uh, which I think I, is correct, that in the last 20 years, there's been a massive intensification of what is called identity politics. So politics has now shifted for me, uh, slightly away, whether it has in reality, but certainly within the conversation from about being sort of economics and class, whatever, to being about what we call identity. And that is a whole branch of it, like could be ethnicity, which is my primary subject, but it also includes sexuality and gender. And curiously, just, just to interrupt, one of the strange things is that a lot of the identity politics of the 70s and 80s was much more focused on class. Yes. And this is one, one thing talking Bernie Sanders about, that actually the shift has been less focus on class and more focus on issues of ethnicity, sexuality, gender, etc. Yeah, that's what, that's what I think has happened. And within that intensification, uh, there's a lot of good things, I think. There's some not so good things, but in general, a heightened awareness that there are identities within the culture that don't necessarily operate with enough inclusion, enough representation, enough sense that you know, things are being said about them, their lived experiences dismissed, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. I think in general, we're undergoing a period of correction about that, and people are trying to be more aware of those things than they used to be. Within that conversation, it seemed to me, certainly when I wrote the book, that Jews were not really included, that it wasn't a big deal, that anti-Semitism wasn't such a big issue for the people who were very worried about racism, that it wasn't even understood as racism, that it was thought of as religious intolerance, which, as I've often said, is clearly incorrect because I'm an atheist, as that book proves, and the Gestapo would shoot me tomorrow. (laughs) So... Those things, uh, and, and indeed, like within diversity quotients, like the one thing you wouldn't have got, certainly when I wrote the book, there's been a slight shift since then, is someone saying we need to include when we're doing a diversity initiative some information and education about anti-Semitism. Now I think that is happening, and I get asked to do it a lot. Mm. I'll be honest, I think that's a result of the book and other conversations. And the fact like, of, of Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party making yeah. the issue so prevalent. Can, can, can we, can we touch on that a little bit? Yeah. What is your sense on, on Corbyn and anti-Semitism? Do you think he's, he was an anti-Semite? So I, I answered this recently with uh, on Beth Rigby's show. So there's two things. I actually thought I shouldn't have answered it, not because I can't answer it, but because that was actually on Holocaust Memorial Day. And I am, as we know, somewhat precious <laughs> about the Holocaust. And I thought if I answer this, it will just be, certainly on social media, 
what blows up and what everyone talks about. Uh, but because I'm kind of polite, despite swearing a lot on this, I didn't say I don't want to answer that. So I did answer it, and that is what happened. And I kind of wish I hadn't, partly also because I think anti-Semitism uh, is a very complex and also very ancient issue. And within the political conversation, certainly in Britain, there's a slight sense that it's all about Labour Party 2050 to the 19th. And it really is. There's massively deep social and psychological malaise to do with anti-Semitism that goes back centuries and centuries and centuries. And so I tend to be, let's not talk about Corbyn, a bit like I am about Israel. It's a much more complicated issue. Having said that, and I can show you what's wrong with the conversation with what happened with the answer. So what I said is, I do not believe at the front of his mind that Jeremy Corbyn is an anti-Semite. And I used the example of that mural that he supported. The picture that went up in East London a while ago, a mural of some very, very hook-nosed bearded men, rich men playing Monopoly on the backs of the world's poor. And some Jewish people complained about it. And the artist said, oh, I see some old white, very important word, white Jewish folk have got upset about my portrayals of their beloved Warburg and their beloved Rothschild. I mean, this is a progressive guy sounding like Goebbels, right? And Jeremy Corbyn supported him. And when I used the phrase at the front of his mind, I got massive hate on Twitter. And in fact, Jeremy Corbyn himself said, what does he mean? Is he my psychiatrist? How does he know what's at the front or back of my mind? And I realized then that I should have said, Jeremy Corbyn is showing unconscious bias. Mm. Because what my whole thing, to some extent, is about is I am modeling the language and vocabulary of identity politics. And I'm showing how it doesn't apply to Jews. And I I must just say this. And I truly believe that if anyone was to say to Jeremy Corbyn or any other progressive about any other minority, I think you're showing an example of unconscious bias here. They would at least stop and think about it and think, well, it's not my place to say, how dare you, you're not my psychiatrist. But that's not what happens with Jews. And you were actually trying to say something inoffensive. Well, nuanced. I nuanced, think. yeah. yeah. You, you certainly weren't trying to say Corbyn is an anti-Semite. I don't think he is an anti-Semite in the way like, I think Hitler was an anti-Semite and I believe Kanye West is an anti-Semite. These are people who directly say, very, very negative, murderous things about Jews. That's absolutely, he would never say anything like that. And I do not believe he would think it. Mm. How do you feel about Labour now, today? Because you're basically a Labour person. Yeah, I voted Labour all my life. I didn't vote Labour in the 2019 election. I can't remember if I did in 2017. Was that the previous one? Yeah, yeah. 17. Why um, didn't you? In 2019, I had become someone who did believe that there was too much of an issue with the really just this sort of not listening to. Uh, aspect of the Jewish issue. I felt that Jews were saying there's a problem here and they were being dismissed. What, what were the problems? So there was the mural. What were the other problems? That well, there were lots of other, other yep. specific problems like there's that book, Imperialism, which is a very good example. A lot of the time, what I was trying to point out with the mural and that book, Imperialism by Hobson, is it? Uh, is that if I felt with Corbyn and with quite a few people on the left, they feel there are bigger issues going on. So with the mural, it's about world poverty. And, you know, that's the important thing. And it's just irritating if people think, you know, oh, but they've represented them in an anti-Semitic way. That's annoying and it's a distraction. Similarly, imperialism is a big book about imperialism in which Hobson just says there is a race of Jewish financiers. It's a sort of late early 20th century book who are controlling imperialism and it's their responsibility. And Corbyn wrote just a glowing forward without any mention of that. Not because he's an anti-Semite, because anti-Semitism is not big. It's not important on his list of issues. And how much, how much do you think? I mean, obviously... But there are, I, sorry, within I, the Labour yeah. Party, there was lots of other stuff going on. 
So if you actually hear, for example, the way that Luciana Berger was sort of alienated out of her local Labour Party, it's sort of really unpleasant and violent. And how much is, so I, I live now in Jordan, how much How much of this... You live in Jordan? I live in Jordan, I live in Amman in Jordan. That is really quite a commute. I know you had a hard time with the Tory party, but you didn't have to leave <laughs> the country, go and live in Jordan. So I'm wondering how much of this is... Uh, driven by uh, people's views about Palestinian issue, how much of this is Muslims in the Labour Party. I, I, don't, I don't understand the context of what's going on here. Have you read my book? No, I haven't. Okay. Uh, so, so one of the things I say in it is that I personally, there's a very short bit about Israel, and I make a point of not talking very much about Israel because I think there's an assumption, again on the left, that the whole conversation is about Israel. So, for example, Tariq Ali, as an example of a very progressive person, at a Hyde Park march in support of the Palestinians a couple of years ago, said if the state of Israel would end the occupation, anti-Semitism would disappear. So the state of Israel was started in 1948. There was quite a big anti-Semitic incident just before that. There's no way in the world that anti-Semitism is just about Israel. And the notion that it's all about Israel is dismissive of anti-Semitism, in my opinion. Unquestionably, it is still important. Unquestionably, it is used by the left. And the most bald and annoying way it's used by the left, and this is partly why I refuse to talk about Israel, is that if you're talking about anti-Semitism, nothing to do with Israel, say online, someone will instantly say, what about Palestine? It's as if you can't talk about that subject without putting your cards on the table and, and, about and Israel Will first. you at some point get round, do you think, in your life to focusing on Israel and Palestine, taking it seriously as an issue? No, I don't not take it seriously as an issue. I just think it's but, not... But is it something that you inform yourself about? I, do some... infor- I inform myself about do, it. Do you, I don't do you travel any... there? Do you think about it? Do you... I do, but I don't feel... I, I, this is part of my thinking, Rory, is that I think it is not my responsibility to either defend or attack Israel as a Jew, because... That is not a stricture placed on any other minority in relation to any other country. If I was a British Muslim and I wanted to talk about Islamophobia in the Tory party, for example, I don't think anyone would say, well, first of all, I'd like to know how you feel about what's happening in Iran Mm. or human rights in Saudi Arabia. Can we clear that up first? It's a sort of mirror of Jews that not counting. Yeah, it's the same thing. It's a way in which there's a sort of arbitration that happens with Jews Mm. between Jews and what they want to talk Mm. about. There has to be a serious hoops and hurdles that they have to go through. And I reject those. Well, we're going to have a short break. Then we'll come back and explore First of all, what are you going to do at the next election? I'll, I'll vote Labour next election. Okay, well, I know. I'll, I'll vote Labour next election. And then the second thing, <laughs> uh, I think Rod would be fascinated to hear your account of your conversations with his former leader, Mr. Cameron. Okay, take a break. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. 
Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Welcome back to The Rest of Politics, leading with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Ernst Campbell. And we have David Baddiel with us. Um, I just wanted to finish up, and I think a really interesting um, conversation you were getting into, which is the question of how much Jewish identity is bound up with conversations around Israel-Palestine. And, and I think you've made a very good point. And I guess, let me try to see whether I've got an analogy here. Um, often when I was teaching in the States, people would think because I was a sort of upper middle class British person, I needed to take responsibility for the British Empire. Mm. And I needed to provide a big analysis of slavery in the 19th century and the responsibility of Britain towards India and so on. Um, is that analogous? I don't think it's quite analogous because I don't think an upper middle class English bloke is a minority. All of this has to be keyed into the fact my thinking is that Jews need to be counted as a minority, as a vulnerable minority, which is what they aren't thought of because of the Jewish association with privilege and power. Mm. But my point is, no, we are a vulnerable minority because of years and years and years of persecution that is ongoing. And because you don't yeah. suffer. I don't, by the way, I don't think you should have to answer for that particularly. It seems a bit mad. But I wouldn't say it's uh, something that I would consider in the conversation around how you talk to minorities about minority experience. I, I'm very interested in this. I mean, I think you've, you've, you've got yourself uh, a very interesting angle into the wedge issue of identity. And I think one of the things that is both revealing and troubling around it, is that it cuts in both directions. You're cutting in the direction of saying that Jews as a vulnerable minority who've experienced immense historic suffering, hatred, and abuse should be um, considered alongside other minorities. I'm not saying in exactly the same way. But, right? There, but, there are differences. But, but you also, it cuts in another direction too. Sometimes there's a sort of um, a reduction taking place here where you're pointing to things which are odd about the way that identity politics in general works. Yeah, maybe. And the more that you keep claiming this, it, 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 there's, there's a risk that somebody like me listening to it is like, is like, where does this end? Okay, so what you need to know about that is I am not saying uh, in the book, oh, I desperately want the sort of madder ends of what happens when identity politics becomes the way we all think and a kind of trigger culture happens and everyone becomes offended about everything to necessarily be applied to Jews. I'm just saying, I'm modelling how that is thought about, how that is talked about with other minorities and asking the question, why are Jews left out of this and what does that mean for how people think about Jews? How people take that is another conversation, but it's not a manifesto about, and now I want people to get incredibly angry every time there's a tiny bit of what might be considered to be casual antisemitism, which, by the way, is never going to happen. Well, it's no, never no, going to no. happen. Can we, do, we need to talk about language. Yeah. Because I, th I thought it was fascinating in the book. You talk about how nobody will use the P word, mm. rightly, apart from maybe a few far-right racists in yeah. the privacy of their own homes. Nobody will use the N word, but the Y word... Mm. 
gets used a lot and yeah. it gets sung at football matches. Yeah. And I want you to tell Roy the story about your exchange okay. with David Cameron so, about it. So one of the, so I start the book, uh, and indeed I started the film that I did, um, about Jews don't count for for Channel Four, with a series of examples of what I call the Jews don't count phenomenon. I then go on to try and explain why I think this is happening, uh, to do with the privilege thing and the whiteness of Jews or whatever. But um, one of the, the probably the most violent example is that me and my brother go to Chelsea every home game, and we have put up with for twenty years, thirty years, the fact that because there is this association of Tottenham Hotspur with a sort of phantom idea, as a racist idea of Jewishness, because they are located in a fairly Jewish, that, that they are called Yids, and I'm going to use the word, they are called Yids, and their fans not only chant Yids and Yid Army, but it's said back to them, which is the key thing, by Chelsea fans and Arsenal fans and West Ham fans in extreme ways, including with Holocaust stuff, Spurs are on their way to Auschwitz, all that kind of stuff, hissing to simulate gas chamber. That's gone on for years and years and years. There was one particular incident where me and my brother were at Chelsea and that chant started. We weren't even playing Spurs. And then it was directed at us, at me and my brother, with people just going, fuck the Jews, fuck the Jews, over and over again. And my point is not that there was an anti-Semite at a football match. My point is that that's, that happens. The point is, stewards, by then, and in the program, and this is my point about the conversation and about identity politics, by then, 2009, the program said any racism heard in the grounds will lead to immediate ejection and a banning for life. Nothing happened. Literally, no one said anything. The stewards it, just... Because it didn't away. count. We didn't hear it. They yep. don't even recognize yep. it as racism. Yep. And then we did a film about it yep. called The Y Word, yep. but that was difficult yep. to get on and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, the story, which is yep. a funny story, but sort of also very indicative. Um, I say in the book that if you want to believe, because a lot of people question the study of the hierarchy of racism, but if you want to sort of prove it in an a priori way, Alistair is right. You know, neither, no one here, no one in this room would use the N-word and the P-word, which is a good thing, but I can say the word yet. I am Jewish, but I reckon either of you could say it and it would not be the end of well, your we career. talk about it. Whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 no it would definitely not be the end of your career. And I'll prove why. <laughs> I'll prove why. I mean, obviously this was a little while ago, but not that long ago. When I first started talking about this, it became a bit of an issue. A lot of people disagreed. They started saying that Spurs fans should be allowed to say it and blah, blah, blah. And in 2014, I think it was, David Cameron was, I think, asked by a journalist at the, uh, who doorstepped him at number 10 from the Jewish Chronicle what he thought about that. And he said, I think Spurs fans should be allowed to call themselves Yids. I think it's fine for Spurs fans to call themselves Yids. Then there was a funny incident where I was on The Agenda, which you may remember, Tom yeah. Bradbury's program, yeah. and he was on it. And I'm waiting in the green Cameron. room. Cameron was, Cameron was on it, and he was the prime minister. So he he came, yeah, yeah. In, but he comes in, he bustles into the green room. He comes straight over to me, and he says, again with no compunction, "I'm a Jew with no compunction. Yeah. Are we going to talk about the Yid thing?" Uh, and I said, "I don't know. You'll have to ask Tom Bradbury." And he said, "Well, I just want to say, if we're going to talk about the Yid thing, you're right. I've spoken to Lord Feldman, and he says Badil's right about this. And I'm just going to say you're right." And what I took from that is not that he'd listened to Lord Feldman, a Jew, but that he would not, I think, in 2015, have gone up to a person of colour and used any of the hate words about a person of colour, even while saying, you're right, he wouldn't have done that. And the reason he wouldn't have done that is that Jewish hate speech is not as hateful. It's seen as not as hateful or as bad mm. because Jews don't count, but more importantly, Jews are not seen as a vulnerable minority. Do you think it, uh, 
affects anything that David Cameron is interested in his own Jewish identity and Jewish heritage. Does Not he talk really about aware that of his age? Jewish heritage. So he's a quarter Jewish, and that's right. something he talks about a little bit. And and I guess um, I don't think when he came up to me and, and said and, that, and in fact, it was famous. He was famous, and one, the reason, the reason due to another, I think the, the, we the, could the reason use this is relevant is that actually Alistair got in trouble with this because he produced a poster of flying pigs with mm. David Cameron and Oliver Letwin. No, it was Michael Howard. It was Michael Howard. Michael Howard, Howard yeah. well, that, that makes a, quite a big difference because Michael Howard is what you might call properly Jewish. Yeah. I mean, this is the trouble to some extent with anti-Semitism is that, you know, someone said to me about this book, a progressive person said on Twitter about Jews don't count. Oh, I, I think I'm a progressive person, but I actually realize I share some of these assumptions. And I realize now that anti-Semitism is the racism that sneaks past you. And my book is to some extent a primer to spot these things because mm. it is quite an elusive thing. And I personally, as a Jew, think that when Anne Widdicombe said that Michael Howard has something of the night about him, that there is an anti-Semitism in there. I don't think she's aware of it. No. I think that is an unconscious, that's a good example so, of on, unconscious was I, bias. Was I victim to unconscious bias when I put, uh, we put a poster out of Michael Howard and Oliver Letwin's heads on pigs when it literally no, did not cross my mind that literally they were Literally not. No, no. Because apart from anything, pigs are not kosher, right? That is not, pigs are actually not a, an example used much, as far as I'm aware, in tropes about Jews. Mm. Jews are more, the, the tropes about Jews, the anti-Semitic tropes are more about vermin or about huge fat capitalists controlling the world or horrible sexual tropes of them uh, sort of approaching young Aryan women, blah, 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 blah. Pigs is actually not used very much as a trope around Jews. Well, the Jewish community will not happen with me. Actually. Yeah, I wouldn't have been bothered about it. <laughs> but, you know, I'm an outlier in many ways. <laughs> so you're increasingly, um, I mean, you're, you're, you're a serious writer. I mean, I'm looking here at a... Serious writer of short books. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I found my niche writing short books, and that, I'm happy with that. Yeah. I'm looking here at 12 books, is that right? Is yeah, that I think so. Yeah. I mean, yeah. nine yeah. of them, not nine of them, eight or seven are children's books, but children's books are, I and, think, very important. Cool. No, and also and, a great thing to write. And, and you were doing a thesis at university in English literature, is that right? I did a long time ago. I mean, to be honest with you, even though I think that was a good piece of work in its own way, I did it mainly because I had no money when I left university and I uh, needed to get some money. And back then, you could get a grant to do a PhD, which allowed me to do comedy at the same time. And what was your thesis going to be on? What it you- was about Victorian sexuality and literature, uh, is what it was about. And what was your big idea? My big idea was about that I believe that the, the way that women were represented by a lot of the big male writers in the 19th century uh, shows a inability to imagine women as an actual, as actually kind of like sort of sexual beings. So the only versions of women that were allowed in the 19th century by Dickens and people like that tended to be sort of idealized little girls, quite creepy idealized little girls, mm. or very maternal wife mother figures. So, for example, in Dombey and Son, Florence Dombey is a tiny little girl for most of the book, sort of angelic, like little Nell. Then she goes to China in the middle of the book to completely erase any actual sexual growth on her part and comes back with three children. You, you went through uh, studying English literature. You're obviously very good at English literature at Cambridge. You went on to do your doctorate. You could almost become an academic if you yeah, wanted I could to. Have been My could grandma, yeah. the one who was from Germany, wanted nothing more than for me to be Dr. Badil and to have a PhD. Right. And even though she was still alive when I first was on the telly, she was not happy about it. She was just pissed off. I guess one of the questions is, is your 
perspective on the world, the way you do comedy, the kind of humor you see, the kind of criticism you see, does that have a link back to the tradition of the type of criticism you apply to Victorian sexuality, for example? I don't know that so much about comedy. I think the book is a PhD in that question. David. There is, we but I think the it. books, well, someone said, which is not exactly answers your question, but it might have uh, adjacently answer your question, is a, a, a Jewish academic who's read that book and God Desire, which is my new book, and Jews Don't Count, said that I have a Talmudic way of looking at these questions. And if anyone's read the Talmud, which I haven't, but what I have a sense of the Talmud is that it's very, very digging into the deep logical questions of life. And I do, I think, do that in these books. I have a very, very, like, what is actually happening under the skin of these quite complicated questions. And what I do include in both these these books, The God Desire and Do Something Out, is jokes. Mm. So I also have, I see no reason why, if you're doing some quite hefty intellectual rigorous work, you shouldn't put and a gag in. Is, is your comedy also based on looking at structures or uncovering hidden structures? Um, I don't know. Uh, my comedy now tends to be very, very, so I, I take one subject. So my last three stand-up shows, I've taken one subject. Fame was the first one, then my family, and lastly, Trolls, and tries to... Re- well, actually, it is, yeah, because it tries to dig into what's going on here. The family one was just very personal. Tell us about Fame. Uh, the Fame one was about how... And you'll both know this. Um, I, personal to me, in a way, because I spend a lot of my time trying to project a version of myself that I feel is authentic, because I don't like to be inauthentic. I'm not very good at playing someone who is not me. But as you'll know, I th- Erica Young said, the more famous you are, the more people will get you wrong. So what fame involves is mistaken identity, uh, literally, in my case, where people mistake Ian Brody of the Lightning Seeds or Ben Elton or whoever it might be for me. I'll tell a quick story about how Roland Keating of Boyzone came up to me once and said, I love your work. I was so pleased. I love your work. Everything you do is brilliant. What I particularly like was Blackadder. And I said, I'm not Ben Elton. And he looked really pissed off. Like I was deliberately trying to trick him with my face. I was, I was in mistake for Nick Clegg the other day. which was Nick Clegg? Mm. Yeah, I once got a free meal in a restaurant in Swansea because someone thought I was Steve Wright, which I really don't Ooh, look like yeah. the DJ. Oh, no, I can see it now. But the, the fame thing was about that. It's about how there's a version of you out there that is not you, and that's destabilizing, but it's also kind of funny. And that's why you're obsessed with trolls. Well, the trolls thing was about, I think, so I, it was just about, it came from something very specific, actually, which is that when I first started dealing with trolls on social media, I thought they were hecklers. And as a comedian, I thought, I can't ignore these. Like, mm. I can't not feed the trolls. I've got to try and make it funny. That's They're abusing me from the dark. Mm. And so I need to make it funny. And I would do that. Uh, and I made a show out of it, really. But it was also a show about what does it mean, this level of abuse that's just in public. Your, what's, what have you, because you, I think there was a time when you were utterly obsessed with social media. Yeah, it's quite I've, a dangerous I've degree. Away, yeah. So what, how, do you, how do you define the history of your relationship with social media? Because I think Rory's a little bit in this, entering into this space a bit. Is he? He doesn't he's tweet so, that much. No, but he looks at it a lot. Oh, do you? You lurk. I, I don't know. I think, I, I think it's an interesting thing. I mean, I, I, th- I think as, as Alice's uh, amateur unpaid therapist, <laughs> used to get very wound up on social media. You I get could wound get up on social media. Incredibly angry on Twitter. I do, yeah, but I yeah. don't get wound up by social media. I get, so if I'm like... You're sure the algorithm's not training well, key your element, brain? The key yeah, element, yeah. It's interesting that because the key element I always say with hecklers... I don't look at the stuff they say. Is don't get angry. If anything, agree with them and then take them I don't down. even look at them. I get... So like if I, we're, we're doing this while Boris Johnson's giving evidence. If we were giving... If I was watching Johnson now, I'd probably be tweeting every minute right. because I 
want to say what I think about what I'm seeing. I don't care about what people then say what I say, whereas yeah. I've got a feeling that you really No, care. I don't anymore. Uh, okay. I think that would be true of me a few years ago. Uh, but actually, uh, what I realised was that the whole treating them like hecklers thing is impossible because normally if you're in a room and you've got a heckler in an audience of 800 people, it's one person, and they shut up soon after you've taken them down, right? But that doesn't happen on social media. Yeah, they come back it's and thousands back. and thousands, and yeah, you get into and they take your stuff out of context, and it it's, becomes maddening and impossible. And so latterly, I've completely changed my opinion about it. Having, yeah. having said publicly, oh, yeah, you should treat them like hecklers, and you should make them funny or whatever, I now don't use it as an engagement platform. No. I do it very occasionally, but most of the time I say something and don't check responses now. Mm, I'm, uh, don't, don't I'm you, So you've been very successful, you know, famous guy, um, books, plays, television, films, films, music. Yeah. Um, we haven't even talked about that. I haven't talked about music. Um, We're going to end with that. We're going to sing okay. it together. Um, but do you, I mean, do you reckon a kind of happy person? Does this, has this made you a happy person? Um, yeah. I think that I always think that people who complain about fa- being famous, unless it's really ruined their lives, and it totally hasn't really ruined my life, are, you know, sound churlish because you know i am as a result of not sort of fame but as a result of what i do of which fame is a part able to write books and tell jokes and make documentaries for a living which really is better than working for amazon you know it really is and so so anyone pretending anyone who writes songs or whatever about how terrible life is in fame about how you have to perform i'm gonna give you an example actually in the fame show i talked about how in the fame show I am not going to be talking about how, like Janis Joplin, uh, I tell I do my show and then I go off lonely to my hotel room and I have to take lots of heroin. I'm going to be talking about how I once got on a Ryanair flight and I deliberately booked only one priority seating thing and then I tried to keep the seat so that my family could get on quickly. But a man saw me doing that and said, "That's very tight." And he didn't say that's very tight. He said, "That's very tight, but deal." And that is what my slightly annoying <laughs> mundane level of fame is like. You can be spotted doing something like that. But that's not a big deal. I am, I am pretty happy. I'll tell you what I am. Happy isn't quite the right word. I am, in my opinion, incredibly comfortable in my own skin. I kind of think I always have been. But I think as a result of that, I, all the destabilization that happens with fame, the mistaken identity, and I've seen it happen to other people, it kind of couldn't happen to me. Because I have nowhere else to go, but you do except get, you, me. You do. You, no, I get depressed. You get depressed. Yeah, yeah. But that's not because of fame. No, you've had no, that before. No, your no, that's why I didn't say I was happy because yeah. I've had clinical depression yeah. and I know what it's like to be clinically depressed, and I still feel it from time to time. And where do you get depressed? I think that uh, depressed is never know the answer to that, Rory. I don't really know the absolute answer to it. I, I do think to come back to what we talking about that it, w- it will have a little bit to do with inherited trauma because mm. my grandfather was in and out of mental hospital. My mother was definitely you know had lots of issues um, dad as well probably I, I, yeah my dad i don't know if my dad was depressed but you know i came from a difficult in a way mm. background and i'm not really a glass half full person i wouldn't say that but i am very happy with who i am which is a different thing to being happy should we close with um the thing we haven't mentioned which is football's coming home and all that sort of said about our culture i mean do you think it's going to go on, go on forever, this sort of myth that England are going to win a major tournament and football coming home is going to be the anthem to it? Well, the interesting thing about that as a, as a question is that, of course, football's coming home, or Three Lions, is primarily a song about losing. Yeah. Uh, that's what it is. The reason that it 
chimed such a large chord with England football fans is it was the first England song about the real experience, perhaps the real experience of all football fans, uh, except if you're a Manchester City fan now, mm. which is that most of the time you lose. And what you do is you go to football magically thinking, well, maybe this time we're going to win, mm. uh, even though most of the time we don't. Certainly as an it's England a, fan. Certainly as a Burnley fan. Certainly as a Burnley fan. Yeah. So, so about I, to get promoted. I'll just put that on the record. Yeah. Got to the quarterfinal of the Cups, played Man City, f- played them off the field, just that they beat us. Good. Yeah. Good. I mean, I think one of the things that's good is that, you know, uh, you come from a, a football fandom that isn't just about winning everything. And most people, that's most people's experience, mm. right? But it's sort of England's experience. I mean, England's experience is a bit, is maybe more about like really thinking we're going to do well. And that's partly to do with the songs, because the songs were all this time more than any other time. Yeah. You know, they were all about winning. Did and, you sing when you wrote and we, it? And we weren't winning. And, and then what happened was we wrote Three Lions, and people now talk about it, as you say, as like, oh, football's coming home, as if it's a song of triumphalism. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. It's a vulnerable song about thinking we're going to lose. But did you think when you wrote it that it would become the sort of phenomenon that it has? I mean, it, no. It's that, a bit that's crazy. The case, that's the case with everything. But, I mean, to be fair about me... I only write things that I feel quite deeply. I've never really written anything or done anything that doesn't engage me on a very deep level. And when me and Frank were asked by Ian Brody to provide the lyrics to that song, we sat around and talked for a bit. And what we said was, let's try and write a song about what it's really like being an England fan. Yeah. And we didn't know, but on the, and I have told this story, but hey, on the day of England, Scotland at Euro 96, uh, after the song had already come out and done quite well, got to number one, all very exciting, but we thought that its time had come and gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and England weren't playing very well in that tournament. They'd lost or drawn to Switzerland in the first round, first game. And then they played Scotland. They weren't playing very well. In the, second half, in the second half, Gary McCaster missed a penalty. Mm-hmm. Seaman pumped the ball upfield. Gaza scored one of the greatest goals ever scored. The sun came out and a man who I really owe an enormous debt to, and I don't know the name of, the DJ at Wembley put three lions on as they came off the pitch. And here's the thing, the whole crowd, apart from the Scottish fans, mm. started singing the song. At a point in time where there was no lyrics on screens, we didn't know everyone had taken the song to their heart. We had no idea, me and Frank. Mm. The ho- Like 80,000 people just start singing every line, not just the chorus, every line mm. of the song. That and, and people say, the best day of your life is when your children were born. Sod that. Well, David, thank you for being with us. <laughs> My pleasure. It's been a real laugh. So, Rory, what do you think, David Bedell? Well, I, I By think- the way, you should have read his book. You should have read The Jews Don't Count, but I sent that to you. You did, you Come did. Come on, do but some bloody research. Do some homework man. before I go on, me. that's right. It's good that you're plugging his book, though. He did pretty well plugging his book, but he not as, his, not as well as you're going. I counted seven so, yeah, book yeah, And you've just added an eighth book plug in there, too, haven't you? <laughs> um, I think he's extraordinary. I mean, he's obviously... He's got a very interesting, quirky, quirky yeah, quirky mind. Um, he's he's good at being tough and taking it back to the interviewer. We haven't done an interview with somebody who's interrupted us as much, argued back as much, speaks very quickly, doesn't mm-hmm. he? Mm-hmm. No, he's, and he's he's very good. He's, he's actually got that sort of that um, tactic that a lot of politicians use: is that they spot when the next question's coming, but they just sort of you know steamroller through it but i do think i mean honestly you should read jews don't count it's a very very interesting clever book and 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 i think he does have an interesting take and it's quite interesting that he's now writing about god from this atheist perspective um i don't know if i buy the kind of people believe in god because they believe in a superhero no I, I i i don't and i think that is the thing that if i'd had more time he says he's very comfortable in his skin but he's also very very confident in his views and 
I think this idea that the reason why people believe in God is that they're afraid is a lack of imagination, that there are many, many varieties of religious experience, there are many mm. varieties of religious belief. And I think that's a slightly, if I was going to confront him, Big a clip. slightly patronizing atheist view of the situation. The other thing we didn't really talk about, that I've talked to him before about, is the fact he's a terrible insomniac, sleeps very, very little. Never, he says he never, ever has a good night's sleep. And I think it's hard to say you're comfortable in your skin if you're not sleeping. There's got to be stuff going on there that's keeping you awake. And, and as you said, he, he's, he's depressive, right? Mm, yeah. I mean, he's, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if he takes medication now, but I know he has done in the past. Um, no, I think, he's, I think he's got a very, very interesting mind. And also, he's, he's, he's gone through these sort of various stages of his, his career. I don't know why he cares so much about how people perceive him, you know, that whether they see him as the football lad with Frank Skinner or the intellectual who's writing interesting books. Or I think if you're comfortable in your skin, you don't really care about what anybody's really thinking. And I think he's moving to that, but I'm not sure he's really there yet. I reckon you'll find God in the end. Yeah, there we are. It's a good, good, good prediction. I know. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for setting that up, and I, I thank you for the conversation. See you soon. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. 